Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. My guest today is Jordan Driscoll. Jordan is an incredible vice president of sales and marketing and the host of a new podcast called The Oil and Gas Geopolitics. Jordan, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah. Hey, Jordan Driscoll here, and I am very glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. How did you get started off in the energy sector? So it kind of by accident. Um, my uh Original education was pre-law. I worked at um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is a massive American insurance company. And I did that for a number of years, working sort of in their customer service. And I moved into sort of their their legal reconsiderations department. Left there after I finished college and went to a boat manufacturing company. And I was in accounting there, which was quite a bizarre career change to go from from you know pre-law customer facing to accounting. But it's what I did. I worked there for a couple of years. The company had um, some layoffs and I got caught up in all that. And I was hired a couple of weeks later for an accounting job at a local software company. And that software company was Wolfpack Software, which made oil and gas ERP software. And that got my start. I rose up through the ranks at Wolfpack. And when I left there, gosh, I guess six years later, I was director of professional services and I got hired by my current company to be director of sales and marketing. And I've been here for about two and a half years and got promoted to VP of sales and marketing. So my my entry to oil and gas was quite accidental. I didn't mean to get there. And it was um, through accounting and at a software company in oil and gas. And now I'm at a company where we market outsourced accounting for oil and gas industries and energy industries in general. Uh, so yeah, it was a little indirect. Okay. You have had a master's in uh, law no, no. I uh, I got my my undergrad in pre-law and I was planning on going to law school. And then after four years of studying at the undergraduate level, I realized I had zero interest in doing it professionally. And so I didn't go for my JD. And so, yeah, it was like I said, it was sort of an abrupt change. You know, like any good millennial, I uh, changed my mind halfway through the process. Okay. So do you think that your de- your degree in law has uh, helped you in your career? I believe in a way, yes, and not directly, but it certainly helped me learn how to read legal documents and kind of analyze things. From a pretty young age, getting in the workforce, I was able to have my boss hand me a contract and say, okay, I want you to read this and kind of tell me what it means and what we need to look out for. Or, hey, our lawyers, the actual lawyers, because I'm not one, they sent back these notes on this thing tell me what this means in, in simpler terms or break it down for me or what do we need to ask the lawyers, that kind of thing. So I, I did kind of a little bit of middleman work for my my boss, the CFO at Taiga, and that helped quite a lot. And also it's helped as I've moved up my career where I'm dealing with managing those kind of contracts with our clients where I can look at it much more comfortably than than some people do. It, it doesn't bother me to go through a... In fact, just yesterday, I got done with about a 25-page contract with one of our vendors that our board sent me to to review and I'm just going, okay, yeah, I'm going to grab a cup of coffee and, and whip through this thing. So in, in that sense, yes, it did. It, it made me very comfortable with those kind of documents and speaking that language a little bit more where some people are not. Okay. So that's probably a really good skill to have then. 
It is. It was an accidental one. No one thinks about that when they get into business. But yeah, it's it's been handy. Okay. Thank you. Uh, who was your role model and why did you find them inspirational? So probably the best role model that I had in my career, uh, there are probably a few people. I would say probably the most influential one was Bill Hobbs at Wolfpack. He was the chief operating officer. And you know, I read somewhere someone said this. It's not original to me, I'm pretty sure, that you know, you get successful by one of three things, by a combination of three things, right? You get successful by hard work, which everyone always says, but that's only a part of it. You get successful by knowing somebody that helps you when you need it, and then dumb luck. And um, Bill Hobbs was that guy that kind of found me. I would happen to be in the right place at the right time. Bill Hobbs was at the company and he, for whatever reason, felt like I was way underutilized. And he gave me a shot at a manager's position, I guess, several months, a year after he got there. And from there, I just kind of skyrocketed. I just did a reasonably good enough job to get promoted several times. And um, Bill was kind of just this, this amazing, probably the best boss I've ever had. Really, he was firm. The man was like a strict strict Scottish rector, you know, just very, he would, he would make sure you were staying in line, but he was also very compassionate. If you were having a problem with something, he wanted to find a solution to help you or show you how to fix the problem yourself. And, you know, he just always had your back. He was never going to leave you out to dry or blame you for something. He held you accountable for the things you were responsible for, but if you were not responsible for it, he wouldn't let you take responsibility. He wouldn't throw you under the bus. He'd, He'd get in front of that bullet if there was one. And he would always make sure he was the one bringing the heat down. He would never let people above him get to his people. So to me, that was just such a an incredible – there are certain people I worked with in the military that that led like that, and Bill was a veteran, so I maybe that's where he gets it. But he just – he taught me a ton about management, about leadership, and, and and he also just helped make my career. He gave me a chance at a critical stage that propelled me to, to go on and be – further successful. So huge amount of, of affection and respect for the man. I still talk to him frequently. I went to his house last month or I guess two months ago and uh, you know had dinner with him and his family. We're still very close. And I still think of him as a mentor. I still feel like there's more I have to learn from him. Another person that's been a, an influence uh, is a contemporary of mine, Kyle Brooks, who's also there. He's now their chief revenue officer. Just got promoted last month, actually. And he's my age, a couple of years younger than me, but super sharp, super, you know, just go get him aggressive. So he's always somebody that I just kind of look at and kind of think, okay, what are, you know, and he and I have sort of a, a more two-way relationship because he'll and I, he and I will have conversations probably weekly sort of going over our respective, because we do effectively the same job at two different companies. I mean, we worked together when I was at Wolfpack and now we both run our respective sales organizations. And so we spend a lot of time just kind of brainstorming together how to deal with managing up to a board or handling the directors and managers beneath us or, you know, just kind of navigating those things as, as you know, if I can say young men, got a little, little bit more gray in my beard these days, but uh, I'm also going to claim young. And so he's, I don't know if he's a role model so much as just a contemporary that I feel that I sort of, he and I came from sort of the same class, so to speak. And we, we sort of made it together and we still, still try and encourage each other and, and educate each other on things that we figure out as we move 
through the ranks. So that's that's two, I would say, off the top of my head. You were saying before that one of your mentors taught you a lot about business and management. What was mm-hmm. the, the most valuable thing that he taught you? I would say, so one of the, so the short answer is everything. Uh, everything the man's ever taught me has been brilliant. But one particular lesson that I will whittle it down to is I remember very specifically, I have a pretty joking personality. I like to keep things fairly casual, um, except when we need to be serious. And when I first got promoted to, uh, I think it was director, and it was a pretty big jump because I went from running a team to running a department, and it was a lot more people and a lot, you know, at this point, I now had board visibility and I was dealing with the CEO and in the executive meetings, all these other things. But I always kind of made this joke a couple of jokes that is a lower ranking employee I could kind of get away with, but I always say something like, ah, you're fired. You know, I do the Donald Trump, you're fired thing, which was a lot funnier before he became president. So I would always kind of do that whenever I was frustrated with something. And then I would always say, uh, you know, one of these days I'm going to pull a, a Nixon and I'm going to resign in disgrace. I, which I thought was hilarious. You know, I was joked I was going to resign in disgrace. And one day I, I made, I think, both of those jokes, and uh, he pulled me into his office. He said, all right, listen, I'm going to have a talk. And I said, okay, what's up? And he goes, you got to stop making those two jokes. And I said, okay, why? You you used to laugh at him. What's the problem? He goes, yeah, when you were just an individual contributor, it was hilarious. But you're a director now. When you jokingly say someone's fired, you have the power to fire a third of this company. You can't just joke about that. People might get very worried about their jobs because you're going around saying this. You you're in a different position. You can't just do that. And I said, well, but they know me. It's fine. And he goes, listen, if the receptionist walks in and says, boy, I don't know how we're going to make payroll tomorrow. Nobody's going to care. If I or the CEO walk in and go, oh, I don't know how we're going to make payroll tomorrow. Everyone's going to lose their minds. The only difference is who's saying it. You're now saying a thing that you shouldn't be saying at your position. And so that's the rule. Now that you're a director, it's got a very different meaning behind it than it does if you're an individual contributor. So that was a very eye-opening example to me because I hadn't really thought about it like that. But when he was like, yeah, if the CEO comes in and goes, oh, are we going to make payroll? Everyone's going to freak out. If the receptionist says it, no one is going to care or think it's serious. So that was one of the most impactful lessons about remembering that the the chair you sit in, respectively speaking, the voice carries a different weight. And that's uh, that's a lesson I had to learn early on. That's a really good lesson, actually. That's a really good uh, answer. Because I never really thought, you know, I, I, maybe I'll, some a lot of people would think about it, but it is the higher up the higher up the chain you go, you would need to be careful of what you said to people, I would think. You would, Truly. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to make so much jokes about things that you did when you were lower down. Right, yeah. There's just too many eyes and too many different sets of ears, and it can be misconstrued so easily. And I still try and keep it pretty casual with my current company, but I always have to keep that in the back of my mind of, okay, at what point can I not joke about a thing because it may be, it's going to come off the wrong way with where I'm at. So it was, it was very impactful. Do you think that's affected your style of management then? If you have like an easygoing management style, because we've only been talking for a short time and I think that you would be an excellent manager, quite easygoing. Well, thank you. I, I think it has affected it in the sense it probably made me a little better. I mean, There are certainly, again, I don't need to walk around a company and jokingly tell people they're fired. That's just, yes. When I was just some guy punching the clock in, it was fine. 
Mr. Vice President doesn't need to say that. And so I think it may be better, maybe a little bit more thoughtful. And um, I still managed to have fun. I think my team is very happy. And, you know, we have a good team here and they all seem to get along just well. And nobody's risen up in a mutiny and had me beheaded. So I think I've done okay. But yeah, it forced me to grow and think about the things I say just a little bit more responsibly. Okay. Interesting. I was going to lead on to that. What is the most uh, challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? I would say the most challenging thing is, I'm going to answer this as uh, delicately as I can, but honestly, when you get to a certain point, you have almost unlimited power in one sense. I can do so many things, but there are certain things that I have to go to my board for approval. And when you're interfacing with a board, you are interfacing with folks that are incredibly smart, incredibly knowledgeable about a great many things that may not necessarily be what it is you actually do, right? Or may not be very specific to your company. It's sort of bigger, broader kinds of things. And so learning how to communicate what you need and why it's important and why we need to allocate resources to this thing is sometimes challenging when you're dealing with folks who are very removed from your business in the details. And that's probably the biggest challenge that I face in any given time is, you know, whenever I've got some sort of a big need and we have to, you know, try and make a new initiative or, or reallocate resources for a thing that's important, I'm going, okay, listen, this is why it's important. I get it. And to me, it's very obvious because yes, obviously we need to go do this marketing campaign or we need to rebuild the website or we need to do this thing or you know whatever the case may be but communicating that sometimes to a board that has to sign off on on bigger stuff it's hard to kind of convey that sometimes in a way that that folks that don't have any kind of a sales and marketing or an operational background you know my board is primarily comprised of finance guys and so sales and marketing and and marketing especially can be a little sometimes a little ethereal a little chimerical for those uh, folks to grasp when you're trying to say, well, here's the vision and what that leads to and, and what that will result in. But I can't give you a concrete, 100% guaranteed ROI on how this is going to pan out. You know, Maybe if you've got a giant company like Apple, you've got enough um, data to make more accurate projections. But for a relatively small company like ours, it's there's no guarantees in life, right? No. So communicating that up and and trying to sort of get the board to see those kind of things can be challenging sometimes. And it's forced me to kind of think about how I present data and, you know, having to really sit down and think about, okay, what does my board care about? What are the things they care about? What are the things they want to see? Because what I think is important in this project is not what they're going to think is important. So I have to kind of meet them where they're at because they're the board. They're, they're who I'm answerable to. And it's their company that I'm, that I'm, you know, trying to advocate for here. So I always have to be mindful of that and try and adjust the way that I communicate and how I present things to them to, to meet them where they're at, because that's my responsibility is to, to meet them where they're at. It's not their job to, to come to me. So this position is a little, little, you know, it forces you to stretch that muscle and grow it a bit. Yeah, I understand. I was going to follow up with, do you think that your style of communication between different seniority of people like for the shareholders and the board members compared to 
filtering down to your team. Do you think your style of communication has to diff- has to be different? I, I think so. Oftentimes, to a to a point. I mean, I'm I'm still a loudmouth malcontent, you know. So there's that. I say jokingly, but the way you you transact information between different levels, I think by necessity has to change. For instance, when I'm talking to the board, I know that what they care about are spreadsheets and graphs and you know hard numbers because they're all finance guys and that's just what they want to see. They don't they're not into the sort of more ethereal concepts behind it. They don't get it and they're not going to get it and you're so you're not really talking about the that aspect of it. When I'm communicating with kind of my my other top level executives in my company, it's very different because we tend to communicate more openly. You know, we we tend to go into the weeds, I should say, not openly. There's just details the board doesn't care about that they they don't want to know about. Whereas me and the sort of other top level managers have to kind of go into those details with more nuance because we're the ones that have to go and make whatever this decision is happen in the real world. And so we tend to have much more detailed conversations. And also we tend to probably have what I would define as very spirited conversations sometimes. Okay. I think that's the nice way of putting it. Sometimes it can get a little feisty depending upon what initiative is is taking us what direction. But you know, when you're dealing with somebody that is your peer, you know, the other the VP of ops, the VP of finance, um, and all that, they're they're my equals. And so we have very blunt conversations. Well, I think this is stupid or I don't like this or I'm gonna do this. And we or we agree with each other. We just say, oh yeah, this is something we need to bring up to the board because we all think this is a bad idea. We need to to do something different. So that level of communication is very transparent, which can be very spirited, shall we say, or very congenial, but it's always fairly productive. When I'm dealing with the folks directly beneath me, you know, my my head of sales, my head of marketing, I tend to be a pretty transparent operator with them as much as I can. There are obviously certain things like if we're doing an acquisition, they can't know about it until we hit a certain stage or there's certain things that I just can't discuss with them. But I'm generally speaking, very, very transparent. What I found is if they know that I'm not holding anything back and I'm not trying to play any games, they, they're they very willing to just get on board and say, okay, you know, even if I think a thing is stupid, I go, listen, guys, here's the deal. This is stupid, but this is what we have to do for these reasons. So we just got to get it done. We got to make it happen. We all know it's dumb. We just got to go do it. They'll all just kind of go, okay. You know, if I don't go in there and try and BS them and tell them, oh, hurrah, hurrah, it's, it's, this is a really brilliant thing to do and try and sell them. Well, I just go, listen, I'm going to tell you flat out, this is dumb, but this is what's being asked of us. So we have to go do this thing. They get on board and they go, okay, we'll give it a hundred percent. And they do that. I found where I'm at sort of the teams underneath them. I don't interact with the individual contributors as much, obviously, but I like to think and the the spirit I try and convey to my my directors is that I very much want them to have, you know, in so much as they're comfortable with, a similar rapport with their folks. I want everyone to feel like we can come in, joke around a little bit, but also work hard and and feel like a team. You know, I really want that kind of in the trenches military camaraderie in my organization. So I try and purvey that as much as I can. But yeah, there's there's definitely, you know, obviously if I have a junior marketing associate come in and go, Hey, let's let's talk about the financials of the company. Well, listen, listen, kid, we're we're not going to go into big detail about that. I'll give you the broad strokes, but you know, it's yeah, depending on where you're at and who you're talking to, you've got to change 
to some extent, you know, the level of information you're sharing, but also I do try and be very, very transparent with my people. I've found that works for me quite well. Okay. Excellent. I was just thinking as well, you were saying before that part of your success is, you know, hard work, but you're saying that you would also have to have a bit of luck. Is it, do you really believe that? How do you, and can you create your own luck? Ah, uh, I think, so yes, I do believe that. I think, so I will give my anecdotal example. For me, I feel like I always worked hard in my career at whatever I was doing. I wasn't, sometimes I was quite good at it. Sometimes I was mediocre, but I always tried to work hard. When I was working in the accounting support group at Wolfpack, I was not the best accountant on the team. I was not the worst, but I was certainly not the best. There's a dozen people I could point to that I think were way smarter and better and faster at me at all the things. But there were also a half dozen people worse than me, I think. So, you know, I was, I was mediocre, I think. But what I was good at was the big picture looking at things. Like if you gave me a project, a data conversion project, I could look at it and say, okay, this is where the pain point's going to be. This is where the client's going to have a problem. This is where we're going to need to put more hours in this, or we can take hours out of this, or we need to get in front. And then I could get in front of the client and I could communicate to them why this was the case without them losing their mind, where most of our staff couldn't do that. They just weren't, they didn't have that sort of interpersonal desire to have those kind of hard conversations. Whereas I will talk to anybody about, yeah, let's have an unpleasant conversation. Let's do it. I'm all there. And so what kind of the the story of how I got my big promotion that sort of started my career in an upward trajectory was I had started mentoring with Bill. He had me moved into the data conversion team. I had done fine at it, but I didn't consider myself brilliant. There were people way better than me. And I had gotten myself to a point where I was running one of the data conversion teams. And we had this really big project coming in. There was a really big sale. And uh, we had a massive meeting with the CEO and my boss, who was the director of professional services and the COO and all these folks in there and the head of sales and, and what have you. And we have this big meeting and the CEO is like, listen, we have to close this deal. We have to get this data conversion sold. And they, how can we get it done for... $20,000. And I said, they asked everybody in the room and my boss goes, oh, well, you know, I think, you know, I think we probably could and all this. And they ask everybody else. And I'm going, I don't know why I'm in here. I'm the lowest ranking person. I'm wildly unimportant. I don't know why Bill, the COO, had asked me to be in this meeting. This is all a bunch of big wigs. I'm a nobody. And so then Bill goes, Jordan, what do you think? And he, Bill knows I'm <laughs> probably more honest than I should be. And I said, no, there's no way. Absolutely not going to happen. Not going to happen for 20 grand. No way. It's going to be three times that much. It's going to take twice as long as what everybody's saying. It's going to be an absolute disaster. And the CEO was just like, well, your boss just said it could happen. I was like, okay, well, I just, I respectfully disagree. I think he's wrong about that. And I think it's going to be a debacle. And everybody in the room was like, oh, no, no, no. I think we can make it happen. It's like, all right, man, listen, I'm a nobody. Who cares? Like, do whatever you want to do. I just don't think it's going to work. Here's the problems I think it's going to have. And so I said, okay, we're going to do it. I said, okay. So we leave and a couple months go by and the project gets brought on and it gets given to a different team. Does it come to me? Fast forward a couple of months, they're behind schedule. They're over budget. It's turned to this huge, huge thing. The client's infuriated. Everybody's stressed out. And I get a call from the COO and he says, hey, I want you to meet me in the CEO's office here in a minute. And I said, um, okay, I guess this is this is my resignation and disgrace, right? I'm not even working this project, but I'm sure it's on me. So I get brought in there and the CEO goes, why is it that this is, 
you're the only person who was in this room that told me no on this and told me all the problems it was going to happen, exactly how it was going to pay out, and it actually went that way. Why is it you're the only one that raised your voice and said that? And I said, well, I frankly just don't care. I, like, Not that I don't care, but you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the answer, whether you like it or not. You're going to do whatever you do, and that's fine. You're the CEO. But I had no skin in this game. It's not my company. I'm not, you know, you just asked my opinion. I gave it to you. And he goes, well, this is a huge loss leader for us. It's a massive problem. And nobody else was willing to say no, except for you. And now we're in this massive problem that we're having to bail this department out on. And I said, yeah, that sucks. Sorry for you. And he goes, well, you're going to be starting Monday. You're going to be the new director of professional services. And I was like, well, I'm a nobody, man. You don't want that. He goes, no, I need somebody who will come in here and tell me no, if I'm wrong about something and actually knows what's going on and can predict these things and can you know, have an idea of how this is going to work out. And clearly you're the only person here that will do that in that department. So the job's now yours. You'll be coming in Monday as director. And I, okay, cool. Let's talk about pay first. And it was, it was fine. It worked out. But the long route that whole story was, is I happened to be lucky enough to be in a position where my particular skill set I knew enough about this work to know where the pain points were going to be and to know what the disaster was going to be. And I was lucky enough to know the guy, Bill, who knew me well enough to know that if asked a pointed question, I'm going to give a very candid and honest answer. And he decided, I'm going to invite him to this meeting because I feel like we're not getting told the full story and nobody wants to say no to us. And someone needs to be in that room to say no. And I know Jordan will do that. And he didn't give me any kind of a heads up. He just told me to be in this meeting. After the fact, he's like, yeah, I invited you because I figured if there was any BS, you were going to be the one to call it out. And there was. And that impressed the CEO and then prompted my career to take off. And so to an extent, you can make your own luck, but also sometimes it's just you happen to be in the right place at the right time and you get given an opportunity that you then have to make the decision. I could have just followed my boss's lead and said, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, it's great. But I didn't. I guess maybe that's me seizing that opportunity to to. I don't know, do the right thing or be forthright or whatever you want to call it. But in that moment, I knew I was correct. I knew everyone else was wrong. And so I just said that. And that happened to be the right call. Was that me making my luck? Was that me taking the opportunity? The the future generations can decide. I think it's incredibly brave, to be honest. So, well, you know, so it also could be very stupid depending upon whether or not you're right or wrong. <laughs> no, I think it's incredibly brave. Not a lot of people would do that. A lot of people would just... Well, throughout my working career, I know that not a lot of people would stand up against their bosses. Only a few that I've met, I would think, that would do that. So I think it's an incredibly brave move. Well, I appreciate it. It's very kind. I feel like I had very little to lose at that point in my life, so it felt like an easy gamble to make. (laughs) That's probably over-exaggerating, but it was... Like I said, there have been some bosses who have not appreciated that level of of candor. And then there are bosses like Bill and, and Brent, who was the CEO at the time, who really liked it. That's what they wanted was somebody who was just going to say, no, you're wrong and whatever. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I've I've had my share of missteps as well. But also, as they will tell you, nobody will change their mind on a course of action faster than me once I realize I'm incorrect. I've got no ego about that. Oh, this didn't work. That was my idea. That was a stupid idea. We're not going to do it anymore. Let's try something else. I mean, I'm I'm no problem with that. But uh, again, that was something Bill did very nimbly. The man had no ego. If he didn't care if it was his idea or someone else's, as long as it was the best idea, and that's, I think, another really valuable lesson that I got from him. 
I think it is a valuable lesson because if you're doing something, no matter what it is, whether it's an engineering or a di- something totally different, if it's not working, you have to be able to realize that it's not working and then, and then change change your plan direction to something, just, just change it to something new quite quickly so that you can continue moving forward and not hit a roadblock. So I think that is a quite an important message. I, I think it is because too often people get hung up on, well, this was my decision and it's turned out to be bad. So I just have to try and keep forcing it to make it work so that it doesn't yeah, look yeah. like I made the bad call. And I'm I'm of the mindset that, I mean, first off, my philosophy on my job is at this stage, my job is not to actually do much real work, quote unquote, whatever that is, right? I'm not coming in and building widgets. I'm not coming in and building a website or physically calling people and selling things. I don't do that anymore. My job is to make decisions by looking at data and to find talent and keep the talent and do all the managing sort of things. But what is also incumbent upon that is that here's the thing. If I am better at doing any of the things that I manage than the people doing them, I've hired the wrong people, right? If I'm a better salesperson than my salespeople, I've hired the wrong people. If I'm better at graphic design than my graphic designer, I've hired the wrong person. Everyone on my team, everyone in my department, a fresh college grad, you know, obviously doesn't count, but you know what I mean. Anybody who's halfway experienced should know how to do their job better than I do. My job is not to be a super expert on every discipline that I manage. My job is to understand how the whole symphony should fit together and to make sure everyone's kind of more or less playing to the tempo. That's what my role is and not to pick up the oboe and take over the second chair. And I know I'm, I'm overstretching my musical metaphor here, but listen, when I'm overextending a metaphor, just let me roll with it. Yeah, I agree. You're only as good as your team. They're the ones that do all the magic. I mean, that's, they should be better at me at anything that we do. And it, it's my job to just make sure all the sled dogs are running in the right direction. Exactly. So how does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? I, um, let's see, what did I think I was, I, I really had no plans or dreams as a child other than to get out of my house, which I did. I think I always wanted to be relatively successful, and I was fairly convinced I wouldn't because I came from a pretty impoverished background. So I'm quite surprised, and I still, to this day, find myself just sort of going, that's quite weird. I've got money. That's odd. What are you, huh? Well, what's, how did I get here? Why is it? You know, well, I've got a nice house. I've got a nice car. I've got nice things. I think, how does it compare? I'm surprised. I'm very surprised that I made it this far. That's how it compares. I didn't think I was going to be very, uh, well, I frankly, I didn't know I was going to still be alive at this point. So late 30s, hey, we made it. Okay. That's interesting. So why did you not think that you would be so successful as you are? I was always, in my opinion, I was always a very mediocre student. I had no patience for school. I just didn't care. Uh, well, I cared about certain things, history, English, those kind of things, but actual hard stuff, uh, math, science, very mediocre. I think I passed physics on a plea bargain. And so I was always a mediocre student in college. Uh, I did quite well my first several years. And then the last couple of years, I just got incredibly bored with the whole endeavor and just sort of muddled through it with no enthusiasm. I thought it was stupid. And 
my kind of my old my thought process you always hear oh you have to do well in school so you can do well in in the real world whatever that is and i had kind of just assumed because i had been so bored and disinterested in school and i came from a background that was like i said we just didn't have a lot so i it's always a struggle to get resources to do anything and i always felt like i should appreciate being in school more but my god it was just so boring and I wasn't convinced they knew what they were talking about half the time and for whatever, you know, I mean, it was just, uh, I was a dumb kid, but I didn't find the material. It, oftentimes it wasn't interesting or I, I wasn't convinced. I'm very skeptical about things. And so I kind of thought after getting out of school, I did fine, but not outstanding. And I thought, well, this is kind of a template for what my future looks like, but school is nothing like the real world. It's nothing like I mean, university's got nothing to do with anything once you actually get a job and start working. And once I got a job, I was, you know, that that was better. I was better at that. And then once I started getting into a position where I was, where my strength was with was big picture stuff. So once I started project managing and actually being responsible for identifying how a, a thing was likely to go and predicting the outcomes and telling my my team, okay, here's where we're going to run the problems. Here's where it's going to be successful. Here's where it's not. Here's how we have to approach it. That's where I shined. And then from there, just kind of did its thing. So yeah, the reality of it is I was just a mediocre student. I don't consider myself to be some sort of a academic genius or a genius in any other fashion. And so I just didn't think I was going to be all that successful. My, you know, my background wasn't particularly, uh, you know, I was not, uh, I was, I was no nobility, madam. I was not not part of the peerage. And then my school performance was eh, fine, but I didn't think it was going to be great. And so I didn't think that would lead to a successful career. So that's why I'm surprised that I've been successful. Excellent. That's a really inspirational story. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I'm very happy with how things have gone so far. Very surprised, but I'll take it. Okay. Thank you. In your opinion, what makes an outstanding hire if you were going to hire someone? So I always look for, obviously, the technical skill set. That's kind of a given. But for me, culture is a big, big thing and, and honesty, too. I want somebody, you know, there's always that, um, that saying, and I can't remember who said it, but uh, you'd rather have an honest idiot than a clever liar. That's sort of the same mentality I have to a point, obviously. But I really like people that are going to fit in with the culture because what I've found, at least in the teams that I've managed, most skills can be taught to people. Most people can learn any sort of a given type of skill or if they have, you know, I'll give you an example. My um, my last marketing man, uh, director was a guy I had worked with for a long, long time. And he went on to go do some uh, some charitable sort of work. He wanted to get out and do that. It was too bad because I was a fantastic guy. I worked with him for years. I've known him for years. And so I had to go hire a new marketing director. And my marketing director is kind of my right hand. Like that's my the person that I interface with the most and and all of that. And so I was quite worried, you know, I was gonna have to bring in a new right hand. You know, how do you replace Commander Riker? This is a hard thing to do. And so um, if you're a Star Trek nerd, you'll get the joke, but otherwise. So how was I going to do this? And um, I hired Mandy, who's my new marketing uh, director. And she had all the technical competencies, right? She had all the all the skills. She had been a marketing director for another company for a number of years. And so she obviously was qualified on paper and I could see her work and I could see it was very good and all of that. But the question was, okay, fine. The technical skills are one thing, but are you going to fit in with my management style? Are you going to fit in with the team that you're going to be managing? Are you going to be able to kind of 
be able to do things the way I want them done and and interact the way that I want to interact. And, and we're all going to be comfortable with that. And so that was a huge thing. I interviewed a handful of people for the role, but she was the one who not only had the technical competencies, which was the easy part, but had the personality that was lockstep right in. I mean, within a month, she's busting my chops on things. If I haven't gotten back to her on an email or, you know, she's, you know, just, just throwing the punches out too. And it is a hard worker. It is brilliant at her job. And, you know, would have, gosh, like it was a month in, we're in our meeting. We have a sales and marketing team meeting uh, every Monday. And she's like, listen, I want to redesign the website. And I said, I don't want to do that. That's that's stupid. It's going to take too long. We've already redone it too many times. We've, I don't want to. It's, I don't want to do that. And she goes, no, listen, we're going to do it. Here's why. And then she proceeded to just get up and walk me through what she was going to do and why it was important. And when she got done, I just went, you know what? You've sold me. <laughs> okay. You told me no. And then you got up and told me why. I'll take it. I love that. I love that energy. Yes, we will do this thing. So yeah, I look for somebody who's going to be willing to roll with the punches, have a little fun. When I give an order, go execute on it. But when I make a bad decision, be willing to say, let's rethink that. I, I don't think so. And here's why. I like that dialogue. I like being able to have people come up with better plans. Because again, I don't care if it's my plan. I just want the best plan to win. And so that's that's what I value when I when I bring someone on. Okay, interesting. It's a good advice, actually. Have you ever had any career disasters and how have you handled them? Mm, probably the biggest career disaster I had, and I really shouldn't even call this a career disaster because it was not really of my doing and it worked out really well for me. So I don't think I can qualify that one. I'm trying to think. I was about to say, maybe you could, because you could tell us how you turned it around. Well, dumb dumb luck is how it turned around, I think. The, probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. So I've been through two uh, layoffs in my career. The first one was when I was a good bit younger. Uh, I was with the boat company. And not to go into all the details, but the owner spent a lot of money on a wedding, pulled a lot of money out of the company, and had to lay people off to, to me. I mean, <laughs> I always joke that that company, I'm an avowed, you know, capitalist, libertarian American here, you know, I, I love me some free market. And that company, the two years I worked there was the closest I've ever come to just going full on communist, starting a liberation front and just completely going Marxist, Leninist, socialist. I mean, two years there would turn just about anybody from ANCAP to a Marxist, I think. Uh, it was just, it was all the worst things in capitalism to an extravagant degree. And so I had uh, gotten out of, uh, I'd been laid off to pay for this guy's wedding <laughs> effectively. And at the time, my partner was six months pregnant and I was just gutted. I mean, it was just, how do you, you know, I've got a kid on the way and I've, I've just lost my job so that somebody could have an extravagant wedding in Europe. Very frustrating. And I ended out my boss who was there thought well of me and she knew the gentleman that owned Wolfpack. And so she said, well, they're frequently hiring and I know them. So if you would like, I would put in a call and see if I at least get you an interview. And I said, well, yes, I've got responsibilities on the way and I, I need to have a job and he became fully employed. And so she made the call and I interviewed and two weeks later I was hired. And so the story went just fine, you know, but it was, a huge. I mean, I remember very specifically the meeting we were in 
with the owner of this other company. And he was talking about the amount of money he wanted to pull out for his wedding. And me and my boss were sitting there and we said, um, well, if you pull that kind of money out, we'd have to lay off half the company. And he goes, okay, we'll make it happen on Friday. Really? And, and I, and I just looked at my boss and I said, I would have to be part of that layoff because it's 50% from every department, you know, accounting manager, there's only two of us. And my guess is the CFO is not getting laid off to keep me, which was a correct guess. I just said, you just made a decision that lays me off. I'm sitting right here. And he goes, yeah. And it's my company. And he just gets up and walks out. And I was like, I was, I was incensed. I was infuriated. I was like, honestly, man, I'm surprised you haven't had an employee, you know, yeah. I, like I said, that's a company that... Uh, that's quite harsh because a lot of people usually find out through quite late on that they're being laid off. But to sit in a meeting and... Yeah. And watch the owner decide. Oh yes. Goodness. And then for him just to shrug and go, that's nah, my company, so I get to do that and walk out. I was like, I was like, you know what? Maybe we do have too many CEOs in this country. Maybe we, uh, maybe we need to have a realignment. <laughs> I was... I was so angry. How could you not be? I mean, it was just, it was, this guy did all sorts of crazy stuff. I'm honestly surprised he's, I'm surprised he hasn't been brought up on some sort of criminal charges, frankly, but that's a whole other conversation I'm not going to get into. But, you know, life went on and I got to a better place and, you know, he's still doing his thing somewhere in the world, having extravagant weddings, I guess. Yeah, but maybe everything happens for a reason. Because if you yeah. were still there, you wouldn't be where you are today. No, if I were still there, I would have I would have probably just lost my mind and expatted myself to Cuba or something. I mean, it would have, I would have gone a very different route. So I think I, I'm on the better I'm on the better timeline. I think. I think so too. Yeah. Your next question is: Is there anything you still want to achieve in your career? I kind of would like to. You know, I think I would like to eventually get up and and maybe get to a company that's big enough where I can get to a CRO role or possibly a COO role. That sounds interesting. I don't know that I really am all that interested in being CEO. Well, then again, I didn't think I'd be interested in being in upper management, but here we are. But yeah, I think I still want to go a little bit further. You know, I'm, my Lord, I'm in my late 30s, so I don't think I can quite call it a day yet, right? I think I still got to still gotta show up for a few more weeks. So uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think I would love to run, move up to a larger, maybe. I don't want to go too big. I don't want to go to a giant corporation because I think you lose that ability to have that sort of camaraderie that I specifically like. So I could do that again. I also am not opposed to the idea of, you know, going to a smaller company and kind of, re, you know, when I came to Petroledger, what appealed to me when they they brought me over was they wanted me to build. When I came here, they had no sales and marketing department at all. They hired me. And gave me a budget and said, can you build one? And it was a 40-person company. It was a little thing. It was quite a big investment for them at the time. And, and you know, my salary didn't do them any favors. But they asked if I could do this. They felt they had gotten to a point the only way to grow the company was to make sales and marketing and go start doing more than word of mouth. And their outsourced marketing wasn't quite hitting what they needed. And I said, yeah, I, I think that sounds interesting. And it was. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a scrappy little bootstraps kind of thing. I mean, you know, I went out and got my first salesperson, my first marketer, and we were, you know, we'd go to trade shows. And I'm somebody who had been a director at a much larger company and all this. And I'm out there, you know, like helping assemble the booth and kind of having that little, that that kind of scrappy build it from scratch. And now three years later, we've got a decent sized little department. We've brought in a significant amount of sales. We've grown the company terrifically. This company has gone from 40 people to, you know, verging on 150 at this point. 
massive growth. I've got a sales team and a marketing team and I'm, you know, all these things. And so, but that was a lot of fun. I had quite a lot of fun kind of going and bootstrapping a department out of nothing because now three years later, I can look around and, you know, when we did this, we all worked remotely. My team didn't have an office because there were just three of us to start with, just me to start with. And a month later, I brought on a couple of people. And now we've got, we've opened several new offices and my team here in, in Abilene, Texas now has an office and I have this whole thing here. And I kind of feel quite a bit of pride going from literally, it was very much like a startup within a company and getting it to a point where, you know, we've built something that's successful and integral and and has made a material difference to the company that we did this for. And so I could kind of see myself going and doing that again. I kind of quite enjoyed the sort of scrappy nature of it and the you know, the having a shoestring budget and figuring out how to make some magic happen with nothing. That's almost in some ways more appealing than even, you know, that certainly than going to a bigger company. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I really enjoyed. And I could see myself doing that again at some point is just going to a little company and saying, Hey, let's make this thing grow and let's make some magic happen. Cause that was a lot of fun. Yeah. It sounds like it is. Do, do you think, as you were saying, because you're quite a young manager, do you think that's hindered you in any way? Or do you oh, think do you think it's even relevant? Well, <laughs> yes and yes, but it shouldn't be. And I'll elaborate. So certainly it's hindered me in the sense that there are certain individuals that I've worked with that have a very big problem with with answering to somebody who is in some cases, much younger than them. I was at Wolfpack. I had an employee who was a good 20 years older than me, and she was on one of the teams under my organization. So it was me as the director, and then I had a manager, and then she was on that manager's team. And she was quite bothered by this, very, very bothered. And it didn't help that when I had started four or five years previously, I worked for her, and I had just moved up and, and surpassed her quite a bit at this point. And now she was working for somebody that worked for me. And she really had a problem with that. And I've run into that with a few people, not too often, but there especially, that was probably one of the worst because it was a constant fight. And I finally had to let her go, which she also was flabbergasted that I would have the temerity to, you know, you you can't just do that. But I would hear it all the time. Well, you're too young to know what you're doing or you're too young to, to whatever, or I'm older than you, so you shouldn't be in charge. I've heard that from from her and a few other people quite a bit. You're too young. I'm 20 years older than you. You you don't know enough to be doing this. I'm like, well, I've been making decisions like this for the past five years. You've been doing the same thing. Sorry, the age has nothing to do with it. So that's occasionally problematic. What I've found is that oftentimes, if you're a young manager and you rise up through the ranks in a company, it can be quite difficult if your peers or your subordinates are older than you because they kind of look at you as still a little kid with the company who grew up in it, but you're not really there. When I came to to Petroledger, most of my peers are older than me. I mean, as far as the there's three vice presidents that kind of are the the troll guy that run the company here. It's me, the VP of administration, the VP of um, operations, and both of them are a good 20 years older than I am. But I found when you get hired from the outside in and they don't kind of remember you as a little individual contributor who worked their way up the ranks, you don't have that baggage, right? And so when you come in from the outside to a new organization, you kind of – you don't have that baggage and they kind of just sort of respect that 
position immediately for the most part. So there, there is a, sometimes like a, I will say one thing here. So with my current company, I showed up, I visited one of our new offices a while as a month or so ago. And I was in the neighborhood meeting with a client and I thought, Oh, I haven't been to this new office. I'm going to pop in here and, and see the folks. And there were a few new hires in there and there were a few more seasoned employees who all knew who I was. And so when I walk in there, Oh, it's so good to see you and all this and doing the very pleasant meet and greet sort of thing. And if they work with me, if they know me, they know the first thing to do is show me where the coffee pot is. That's what I want. I can get me the coffee. And I can't remember what the exact circumstances were, but there was an older employee, an older employee, probably again, a good 20 or maybe even 30 years older than me, it was a very more mature individual than myself, kind of came up and snapped at me a bit for disrupting the workplace. And they thought that I was one of the new hires and they're like, you know, listen, you haven't been here long enough. You're getting in the way. You're making too much noise and all this. And I just kind of looked at him. I was like, do you have any clue who you're talking to, madam? And they kind of got a little snippy with me. And then one of the other managers came out. They're like, "Um, yeah, that's the VP of sales and marketing. I'd probably throttle it back a bit. But they assumed because I was much younger than them that I was just some brand new accountant that was having their first day. And that's why everyone was saying hey to me. They didn't think I was part of the senior leadership. Um, and I, I taught her, I was like, what was that all about? They're like, oh, well, you're just, you're younger. And I just thought you were, you were just a new accountant or something. And I was like, well, ask before you start jumping on people. That's a smart play. Like that's, don't just start snapping at people because they're young. That's, that's a bad call. Don't do that. Don't do that to people. That's no good. Cause you never know who it might be. So yes, I think in the past, it has sometimes been a hindrance with certain people. And occasionally I'll run into a weird situation like that, where you have something like that happen. It's a bit annoying, but um, you know, if you're a young person who's moved up, you just have to learn how to roll with it and deal with it. And because it's going to be a thing, it is what it is. And, you know, be patient. You'll, you'll outlast them. Okay. Good advice. Good advice. What is your zone of genius? What are you most good at? <laughs> I don't know that I can say I'm a, a genius at anything. I'm quite good at drinking scotch. I can put down some Glenlivet like a champion, I believe. I think if I had to say what I feel that I am quite good at and that I enjoy doing and seem to have done successfully is I think I am good at, at building teams, I think. I feel that I'm not the right person to answer this because my answer is probably biased. But historically, you know, I got promoted to director at Wolfpack. We had to to really revamp the whole professional services team. We had to, it grew ter- terrifically and it became a hugely profitable segment of the company. But I kind of had to build this team up from being small to being quite large. And then when I came to Petroledger, I had to build a sales and marketing team from scratch. And I really enjoy that challenge. And I think that's what I'm good at. I think that is a thing that I'm quite good at. I can find myself getting bored when there's not sort of a, and I've never really thought about myself in this way, but I think sometimes if it just is running too well and it's going too smoothly, I get a bit bored and I need some sort of a, you know, some sort of a challenge. And so, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the the thing that I like doing is building something with very little resources and finding a way to make it successful. And then once it gets successful, I'm like, all right, I need to go do this again because I, we made this work. Now I want to go make something else work. So maybe that's my, my sweet spot. I think I also, I believe 
that I am good at building a team that has a lot of camaraderie and a lot of loyalty to to itself and and to each other and to to the company and all of that. I think you know. I think I do an okay job with that, but I, I have a hard time saying I'm a genius on anything. I, I muddle through, I get by. I think a lot of people do that though. I think I, you're not alone in that. I think sometimes, uh, I mean, I think I'm good at my job, but I would never, I would never say I was a genius. So I think. Oh yeah. There's way better people. It's, but it's funny. My, my current board, we had a conversation one time. This is a couple of years ago. And they're talking about wind up, you know, do something with operations. And they were like, well, is that something you'd be interested in doing? And I said, well, I could do it. I think I'd be quite competent at it. But I said, really, if you want to do something, go hire Bill Hobbs. He's the guy that trained me. He's the one you actually want. He's the one who knows all the magic sauce. Okay. I'm the cheap imitation. You want the actual, the actual genius. That's the guy you want. And they were kind of like, shouldn't you be saying you're the guy we want? I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. That's the premium premier grade okay i'm the 12 year glenn limit that's the 21 get the 21 okay and just go straight to the top shelf so yes i think i'm fine there's there's better than me that's that's my take no that's really nice to say that though not a lot of people would admit that uh, it's true i still have tons to learn from bill i the guy's phenomenal best boss i've ever had you know yeah i've had a boss one boss a couple of bosses actually maybe like that but I always think that you're every day's a learning day. I don't think no matter whether you're 10 years in or 30 years in, I think you can still learn every day. You can learn something different. And you oh, absolutely. Something different every day. So who do you always delegate to? Primarily either to my head of sales or my head of marketing, depending upon what the task is. And I let them kind of run it down to their team members from there. And I do that, I try to delegate specifically to them, mostly so they don't feel like I am managing or micromanaging their teams. I want them to have the opportunity to decide who does the work or how it gets done or run with it without me going to a specific employee and saying, I want you to do this thing. I don't do that very often. Um, in fact, the first time I've had to do that in a while, I think my marketing director was on vacation and I had something come up that I needed done. So I just reached out to, I think the first marketing associate down the hall from me. And I just said, you there, uh, I need this to happen. Here's what I need done. Can you make it happen? But generally I don't like to do that because I don't want to feel like I want my managers to feel ownership for their teams. I want my directors to feel ownership for their team. And if whenever I need a thing done, just grabbing one of their people, do I have the power to do that? Sure. Do whatever I want. King Louie over here. But if I do that, I feel like I'm not giving them the opportunity to to get to make that choice about who does what and how it gets done and all those things. And I think that's really important. You got to let your managers manage. And sometimes you have to see them about to make a mistake and then just let them make that mistake. That way you can have the conversation afterwards and say, okay, I'm going to help you pick up the pieces, but do you see what you did wrong here? And do you see what you need to do differently next time? Now, if it's a huge, huge problem, I'm going to step in and stop them. But most of the time, I'm going to let them I'm going to let them slip and fall a few times. I'll help them up, but I want them to kind of get that that experience of, okay, I need to think about this differently. And if you go in and you just start delegating and bypassing your your managers, you're not giving them that opportunity to learn and to, to have that ownership. So uh, my philosophy on that. No, I have to ask you, do you think it's important 
to be able to allow your your team members to slip up sometimes. Oh, 100%. There's no such thing as a zero defect organization. That's, you know, you, yeah, you got to let them slip up, whether it's it's for learning purposes or just understanding the fact people occasionally are going to make a mistake. Now, are there consequences every mistake? Sure. Sometimes you're just embarrassed. Sometimes there's financial impact. Sometimes there's impacts that are, you know, much bigger. And, you know, if for me, it's sort of a sliding scale. If you're just going to be a little embarrassed or, oh, you're going to have to spend an hour after work fixing this thing that you screwed up, you know, I might let you do that just to deal with it, you know, and that way you think about it a little bit more carefully next time. I'm not going to let you make a mistake that gets somebody hurt. Not that this job, that's really a concern that often, but I'm not going to let you make a mistake that uh, that is going to cost the company real money or anything like that. But I think it's important to understand that one, people are going to mess up. And as long as it's within a certain variance of, of, you know, what are the actual real world ramifications? That's okay. People can make the occasional mistake because uh, they're going to, whether you like it or not. And then sometimes you can see it about to happen. And again, depending upon where it's at on the scale, you just let it happen so that you can have that teachable moment with them afterwards and say, okay, do you know how you got here? Do you know why this happened? Do you know what to do differently next time? That is uh, that is interesting, actually. Good advice, because a lot of people who make mistakes, they they can be become quite embarrassed and maybe worry and quite worry about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a little embarrassment never killed anybody. It's not going to make you comfortable. But I mean, as you move up in any organization, at some point you're going to get embarrassed. There's things I've done that embarrass me sometimes, but you just have to be able to go. Okay, well that sucks, but we got to plow forward and. You stiff upper lip and make this thing happen, regardless of how I feel. You know, it's like any kind of rejection or embarrassment. You just have to be willing to to face it and go, all right, well, you know, that happened. Carry on. Okay. Excellent advice. So I've got a closing question. Please. If you could turn back time, what would you change anything? Hmm. Professionally, I don't know. That's a good question. That's a tricky one. I mean, I'm quite happy with where I've wound up, uh, surprised by it. And I don't know. Um, I almost think if I could turn back time, maybe I would have tried to be a little bit more diligent in school and be a little less bored with the process. Um, although it's not like having mediocre grades held me back in any way. I don't think that had any kind of an anything. I think probably maybe the only thing I would probably change is I think earlier in my career, I probably could have done better to not be quite so mouthy and to not run off at the mouth uh, as much as I did. I was a bit of a a, a bit of a firecracker, um, a bit of a live wire. You know, some bosses really liked that because they felt like they got a very honest answer and a very straightforward answer. But some people, at least in my experience, don't believe in the loyal opposition concept. You know, they think if you disagree, then you're just disloyal and you're plotting against them and it's it's a problem. And, you know, I had not quite figured out that distinction when I was younger. And I just said whatever was on my mind if I disagreed. And and again, some bosses were not a big fan of that. They don't like being told they're wrong or they think there's a better idea. And so I think maybe if I could turn back the clock, I might have tried to moderate that behavior a little bit. But at the same time, that that very same behavior effectively gave me the 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 opportunity that I've got to where I'm at today. So it's it's hard to say really. I mean, 
you know, it's very much one of those butterfly effect sort of things where you wonder now oh, if we change that, then where are we at? Is Jordan is Jordan homeless on the streets today in that timeline? I don't know. Probably not. But is he where he's at today? We don't know. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that's tempting to change. But I don't know that I would because I know that all those were valuable lessons that got me where I'm at today. Yeah, because I was going to say, if you change that particular thing about your past, because that's what you really made you successful. It, it did, yeah. It also got me into a lot of trouble earlier in my career, too. So it's one of those things where it's like, oh, would it have been better if I hadn't or had or whatever? And I think ultimately, no. But that's the most tempting thing to go back and do because it's the thing that got me in the most trouble in my youth was my my mouthy nature. So... Yeah, but I think we're all like that when we're younger. Probably. I, I was perhaps a bit more foolish about it than some. <laughs> but Yeah. No, thank you. Excellent advice. So that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Jordan for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.